Welcome to Sword and Shield, the official podcast of the 960th Cyberspace Wing. Join us for insight, knowledge, mentorship, and some fun as we discuss relevant topics in and around our wing. Please understand that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Air Force nor the Air Force Reserve, and no endorsement of any particular person or business is ever intended. Gladiators, Francis Martinez, Director of Psychological Health for the 960th Cyberspace Wing, here with a very special guest all the way from Hawaii. We're on the phone right now um, with retri- uh, retired Colonel Robert Swanson. Morning. I want to I want to say I'm jealous that you're in beautiful Hawaii, soaking up some great vitamin C, C as an ocean. Yep. But I, I want to thank you so much for your participation today. So just so everyone knows, um, I did hunt him down in order to have him here today, especially during September's Suicide Prevention Month. I know that the topics related to suicide are always dif- uh, difficult to talk about. So I am truly amazed by your resiliency story and how you survived two uh, severe suicide attempts. So let's start by telling the gladiators a little bit about yourself, your background, and your military career. Okay. Um, I retired in 2015 after 34 and a half years in uniform. I started out as, you know, just that hard-charging young airman. Uh, as soon as I got done with tech school, I started taking a bunch of college classes, went AECP, which Airman Education Commissioning Program, which most people don't know about anymore. But when you graduate, you go to the, you get to go to the college of your choice, they pay all books and tuition, they send you to OTS, you get to cross over to the dark side. Turns out I was a pretty good student because uh, came out with a 394 GPA, and within two years, they sent me back to be a master's, and about at the end of that program, they said, well, heck, you could just stay and go ahead and get a PhD. Wow. That's it. You know, my first assignment, actually, as an officer, I was a jumper airborne with the special operations weather team, and then right into academia. Got to get out of their program some pretty cool, super high-performance parallel computing scenes for uh, weather prediction models. They sent me to Hawaii my first time after that, where I was a director of operations for a weather squadron, and I got to do a stint as the exec for General David Deptula, the guy that planned the air war for the first war. Following that, so it's really, really a super, super diverse career. Following that, I went and I was an assistant professor at the Air Force Academy. Following that, I was Ended up going to Korea as a squadron commander in the Pentagon, did a stint in Afghanistan, came back out here again. And after one more short tour at the Pentagon, after 34 years, I said, this is about it. The suicide attempts were right after, well, actually right at the end of Taylor of my PhD, and then another one a year later. Most people don't spend that long in uniform, but God, I love what I did. Really, mm-hmm. really did. And what would you say, like, your most challenging aspects of, of your career? I think a lot of times one of the most challenging aspects was the pressure that I put on myself. I wanted to be the best. I wanted a, you know, best GPA, best at any assignment, promoted first. And and all of these things drive you, sorry, all of those things drove me to just put an inordinate amount of pressure on myself and and start to overvalue some things that just weren't that important in the grand scheme and devalue others that I should have. I should have put first. I should have had a lot more balance in in my attack on things. I think some of that unbalance and the internal pressure really contributed to where I ended up. 
And I think that's one of the big things that we always talk about, right? Managing your work life, your home life, and then your own self-care. Did you feel like you had any, like, family support or, you know, um, as far as, like, spousal support, any other family that were involved, and what were their roles in your life? Leading up to the suicide attempts, I felt like I had absolutely no support. You know, I'd come home late at night because I wasn't doing well on the PhD research, and I'd get berated for not being home. The kids would be like, well, dad, dad, come home. And so in that regard, there was no support. And then following the first suicide attempt, there was so much anger being directed at me from family. Uh, friends were supportive, coworkers were. Family was still just a lot of anger, a lot of, you know, get out of here. Because the dirty little secret about suicide is that a lot of people don't realize is we actually convince ourselves the world is better off without us. Mm-hmm. If we're such a bad person that, you know, if we check out and, you know, mama gets a new husband, kids get a new daddy, and, and there's a big insurance check on the same horizon as well. Right. Did you notice any early signs of depression or anxiety? I noticed them, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I really recognized them for what they were. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, it was, it was sort of like a, it, it wasn't, it was just sort of a slow descent, and it was more of a just... I'm working hard. I'm not getting there. So I work harder. Now I'm not getting there and I'm getting yelled at. I'm working harder. And it just seems like before you could just, I could plow through any obstacle and I wasn't getting it. And so I was losing the desire and the bed sounded like a really cool place to stay for half a day. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I fought that I had to, but you know, it's sort of, those are signs of depression when you want to kind of check out and not really participate in the rest of the world. And I didn't recognize it as that. I just knew I had that strong desire to just check out. And then during any of that time frame, did you seek um, any mental health uh, help or services? And if not, what were some of the barriers to, to doing that? I mean, I could, I could list a whole bunch of them. First of all, I was Superman. I was invincible. And I could take care of any problem myself. Uh, Second of all, when you get to that dark place, when I got to that dark place, um, I didn't want any help. I I just I just didn't. And that's that's one of the big obstacles nowadays is the fact that all of these resources are available. But when you're in that dark place, you're not necessarily wanting to access any of them. And then, of course, the stigma attached with, you know, would it affect my career? I mean, I didn't even want to go to marriage counseling because I thought that might impact my security clearance in my career. You know, a lot of the myths that are being perpetuated even today were, were in my mind. So it really was never a consideration initially for me, mm-hmm. other than other than potential marriage counseling, which my wife kept bantering me about. And um, would you say, <clears throat> I know you said like the stressors of, of everything. Would you, do you feel like a lot of your stressors were directly... Um, from the military, or was it the stressors that you put on yourself? Well, I guess the answer to that is E, all of the above. Um, the military has expectations. They demand excellence. They demand that you get, you know, you, you're doing the best that you can. Um, whenever you go do a job, if you don't do it, you've failed. And in my case, I was getting toward the end of my PhD, and it just wasn't coming together. Mm-hmm. And so if I had left the school and you have a finite amount of time. So I had left the school without my degree. 
trying to finish it a PhD after the fact when you're working full time is not there. So the military had expectations. My goal was always to exceed them. And so whatever pressures I felt, I went ahead and, and piled on and created additional uh, pressure for myself. Gotcha. And can we talk a little bit about <laughs> the actual, you know, suicide attempts? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, bottom line is, and it's interesting, it, it's kind of pervasive throughout my, my discussions and presentations, is, and so I'll preface with this, each time I do this, I have to go back and, and relive that experience. And it, it gets easier over time. Uh, but what, the one thing that I really take away from it is the fact that that person isn't isn't here anymore. So the first suicide attempt, um, it was it was just a deliberate. I had a plan. I saved up. Uh, I had thirty flexorels and I washed them down with a half bottle of whiskey. Hiked out into about a half a mile into the snow to this private place that I used to love above a lake and uh, just laid down in the snow. Yeah, I know I knew I wouldn't wake up. It was great. I, I, I just kind of went off to sleep and woke up in the hospital 12 hours later. I'd been airlifted out. Both feet were frozen. Both hands were frozen and half my face. And the uh, first the first person I saw was my wife, who's my ex now. And the first words out of her mouth were, how could you do this to us, you son of a... Yeah. Which uh, probably wasn't the best words, but, you know, she was angry and, and, and mm-hmm. she had a right to be. We don't talk much about the impact on friends and family and, and, and co-workers and the like. Uh, second time, a year later, high pressure job. I was the only, with my PhD, I was the only guy in the entire United States Air Force that could do the work that I was doing. Um, and I had a long-handled screwdriver from a one-star back in the Pentagon that demanded excellence, separated from the wife, separated from the kids. You know, if, if you go down and you look at all the stressors you could have, move, new job you know, separation, divorce, all the rest. I had them all. Then I, uh, I garage, back of a pickup truck, engine running, one, one car garage, took some more medication, went to sleep. And I'll be damned if I didn't wake up 12 hours later and, and the engine's still running and I'm still alive. So wow. nobody can explain to me how I survived either attempt. Uh, not to proselytize, but I think the good Lord kept me around for a reason. And I think the work mm-hmm. that I'm doing with the suicide prevention stuff is is one of the reasons here you are you know spreading that word yep and you know a lot of people that i've met i i've come from an inpatient psychiatric hospital i i that's where i spent the last six years of my work um and you know a lot of people tell me right then and there well it, it was an argument or something happened what were your thoughts right before you attempted that's actually a, a really good question, and, and most of the time it is. It's it's you're you're on the edge anyway, but then something pushes you over the edge, which is why you know some of the suicide prevention efforts uh, just involve making it a little bit harder to put the gun and the bullets together. Because if you're given a little bit of time to think about it, maybe you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, the first time I, I had a plan, there was nothing in particular that day. It was just, uh, you know, here's an ex- here's another failed experiment. I really don't want to go home and face the wife again. And it's just like, you know, today's the day. And, uh, I mean, I remember standing in the restroom, 30 pills in hand, looking down. And, you know, the anxiety that you feel at that moment in time 
And then the overwhelming sense of peace that I had when I had executed the plan, not realizing, good God, all the implications. I mean, you know, the suicide rates for children of parents who have died are significantly higher. Mm -hmm. I sit there and think to myself, I love my kids so much. And yet in that moment in time, I didn't consider the impact that it might have and that my children might follow me in that regard. So, you know, there was no major argument or anything else uh, the first time. The second time, uh, in addition to a lot of other things, I had started dating again. and uh, So there was a relationship aspect to it also. Uh, she thought I was a little bit too wired, a little bit too too stressful, not stressful, high, high strung, mm-hmm. just because I'm, I was such a motivated guy. And so um, that wasn't working out. So in addition to going through a divorce, I'm also just just a ton of things piled up. And it was, again, just sort of like, you know what, I'm done. But I had a plan both times. It was weird. And what were your thoughts? You know, after the attempt, did you have any regrets for attempting or any regrets for even surviving? The first time I woke up and it was sort of a, you know, what the hell, you know, how did I survive? And then it didn't take very long. I was really fighting the system. You know, I'm sitting here with severe frostbite, both hands, both feet. And instead of treating the medical condition, they were more concerned about my mental health and my safety. So they kept me in a a, a psych ward for a day. So after I started taking inventory of all of the impacts on me physically, yeah, it was, it was sort of soul crushing. And, but at that time I didn't really consider any, any impacts on my career or any, any big time regrets. Uh, The second time the career implications became, you know, present really, really quick. And so it was sort of like, why, what, why did I survive? Because now I've really kind of really screwed up my life. I've really, all the things that I thought were important, I, I just tossed them right out the window. Mm-hmm. And you touched a little bit, but what did your recovery look like from a physical standpoint and also, you know, a mental health standpoint? I will, I will say this. First of all, we have come so far in suicide prevention, post-intervention, pre-intervention, and just kind of understanding the first time I saw the psychiatrist. We talked about all the issues. She had gave me some meditation information, and I was able to really convince her that, look, I'm fine. I need to focus. I need something to do that's going to take my mind off of this. The most important thing to me is finishing this PhD. You've got to send me back to school. And so they did, and I finished the PhD, and I moved on. When I got to my next base, I was still under mandatory psychological counseling, which I was very frustrated about because I and the doctor, just we just went head to head. He, he kept putting me on pills. And number one, I didn't like the impact that pills had on me. Number two, they kept messing with us, put it at work. So we're going to try another one. We're going to try these different dosages. Pills work for some people. Uh, some people cannot function without them. For me, they masked the problem, destroyed all the joy I had in life. And quite frankly, I can't help the feeling that maybe they were part of the reason that I tried the second time. The real breakthrough came after the second attempt and after switching doctors, I got a I got a really good doctor and this man just saw right through all of my macho, I'm Superman, better than everybody else BS. 
uh, when he, when he, I mean, literally I walked in his office, he tossed my file over to me and he says, you may as well take off. There's nothing I can do for you. And I'm looking at him like, dude, your job is to cure me. so I can go back to work and do my work. And he said, no, you're smart. I've seen your test scores. I've seen your IQ. You're smarter than I am. You're going to tell me everything I want to hear. I'm supposed to write it down and say, you're fine. And then you're going to go back to your miserable life where you're, you're drinking whiskey in the dark all alone, where you're laying at the bottom of the shower crying because you don't have the guts to get up and face the day. And, you, and, and, and if that's the life you want, go for it. Or you can give me a chance and we can talk about some things that are causing you to feel this way. And maybe we can untwist some of the ways that you're thinking about things in life. And maybe I can even get you to the point where you get up in the morning and you look forward to the day. And you look forward to going to work and not just survive, but actually go out and have a great life. And I was shocked. Nobody had ever talked to me like that before. And there was that just that sliver of hope that, you know, maybe things could get better. It just really, I let my guard down. And it, it was an amazing transformation from that point. Sometimes you need that little jolt, right? That little confrontation to really put the mirror in front of yourself and say, this is, this is you. This is what's happening and this is a path that you're going down. The man, the man saved my life. Wow. And so what keeps you going now? That's a great question. I'll tell you because one of the most dangerous times in a veteran's life is that one year after they hang the uniform up. When you're in the military, you have a sense of higher purpose. You have you know you're making a contribution to this nation. You've got friends and family and coworkers and and you'll you'll never have You'll never have that sense camaraderie camaraderie uh, in any other profession. Um, so you need to find a way to, to continue to contribute, contribute to, to their areas around you. So since I uh, retired, I had GI Bill. So I went and got an MBA because I wanted to kind of keep my mind active and I could. I began working with Make-A-Wish Foundation. I'd already been doing the suicide prevention work. I started that when I was on active duty. And so we fired up this program called Fight for Each Other, where we have a series of speakers that go out and do appearances, talk about the success stories and the impact that it has on friends and family. And I'm also a personal development slash leadership coach for a, another program that, that I work with. So finding ways to meaningful, meaningfully contribute to those around you. You know, we talk about our resilience and, and the four pillars, obviously, would be mental physical, spiritual, social. We can talk about so spiritual isn't necessarily religion. Spiritual is, is your interaction with society and it's contributing as best you can to the world around you. And, and that gives us that gives us meaning. Being able to find that balance, being able to so I still go out and run every morning. I still like to, you know, do a lot of reading, keep up, you know, on, on the mental side. I like to do the work with the community and, and you know, make a wish. If you have a chance to be a Make-A-Wish volunteer, do it. Um, it's not only making the kids smile because they get their wish, but it turns out the anticipation of the wish actually really favorably contributes to the outcome of, of their treatment. Sounds like you're doing some great things out there. One of the one things I did want to ask, um, you touched on it a little bit. You know, with a career like yours and having several or certain levels of security clearances, can you talk to me about how you overcame those obstacles? You know, uh, my wing is a, a cyberspace wing, and, and I'm sure that's one of the biggest things uh, people worry about with mental health-related issues, right? 
that um, clearance aspect of it. So can you talk a little bit about that? You bet. You got some great questions, I'm telling you. So um, bottom line is the Air Force has made it very clear that as long as you seek help, you're not going to lose your clearance. And obviously there's, there's, you know, there might be one or two exceptions to that, but I've been really amazed, especially toward the end of my career, um, how careful they are to not pull clearances just because it's such a disincentive to seeking treatment. I lost my clearance. I had a TSSCI and I lost mine. And people will say, well, you, you know, if you got help, why did you lose it? Well, because at that moment in time, I had tried. I didn't seek help before I tried. I had actually tried. And so I demonstrated that I wasn't um, in the proper frame of mind to be safeguarding our mission secrets. Getting it back was a challenge. Once you, if they, temporary, they temporarily suspended, it's not that difficult. Mine was actually pulled. And what ended up happening, I needed a clean bill of health for mental health. And they have several tests. One of them is like 1,300 questions. I mean, they're all cross-referenced, and you, you just can't lie on them. And when I got to the point in my therapy where they truly could show that the depression was in remission, it was kind of transformational. I also had the support of my friends and coworkers writing letters of support. It had to be adjudicated at the Air Force level, but because of my recovery, because of the work that I had done it, and the rest, it was reinstated. And you know, I worked at the Pentagon. I went downrange and all the rest. And, and so it was a remarkable transformation. It's awesome that, that, that they were actually able to give me another chance. But it, it was, really was, it was entirely hinged on my recovery. I will tell you that later on, I applied for a job and I needed a class three flying physical to get into it. And part of it is a mental health evaluation. So they gave me the test again. And the psychiatrist that I talked to said that he had never seen such a remarkable transformation based on my initial diagnosis to where I was at that point. And wow. that was a testament to the treatment that I received and, and working through that. And then he looked at me and he says, so unfortunately, even though it looks like everything's great, can't put you, I can't recommend you for this job. What do you think about that? And the old me would have been devastated. The new me says, not a problem. I've got it lined up. I'm going to go be an assistant professor at the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. Door closes, a window opens. That's the transformed outlook that I took based on the therapy that I received. And, and... You know, some people don't realize, right, that therapy is only as good as what you put into it. Absolutely. Right? And they have to take ownership of, of what's really happening. Sometimes they lose sight and say, well, this therapist isn't helping me out, but what are you really putting into it yourself? There is that. I mean, there's, there's, there's a bunch of things that go with it. You know, like I said, I went head to head with my first therapist and you got you to gotta have a level of trust. I needed the confidence in the second one that, that he actually had my best interest at heart. And he was subtle. There were, there were exercises that we would go through that worked really good for a guy who was an analyst. Mm -hmm. um, just simple things like get invited to a party. You don't want to go. Write down how you feel the party's going to go. Write down what your expectations are. Then force yourself to go to the party. Come back and write down how it was and compare those two. Right. Start to get some insight 
into the way that you kind of distort your view of things. And, and, and that was, that was tremendous. And so I had to do the exercises, but I also had a huge carrot hanging in front of me. Happiness, mm-hmm. my Air Force career, a future, you know, and, and, you know, you've figured out, gosh, everything, it always gets better. Problem is when you get to that dark space, you don't see a future. And he, he showed me that there was a little bit of a future, but you're right. I had worked for him. Right. And, and how would you say like leadership in the wing can support airmen better in order to help prevent suicide? Leadership, and, and I'll speak from what I've seen in the program as well, but you just, you got to encourage people to know their people. After I tried, you know, my former boss, he's like, what could I have done to stop this? You know, because I didn't have any of the signs. I wasn't I wasn't walking around with plans. I wasn't doing all of these things. I was the funniest guy around. Hell, I was as funny as Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we wear, we wear those masks, right? We, we, we wear those masks. So knowing your people, even though he didn't see signs, he knew I was getting divorced. He knew I was highly stressed. He knew I didn't go to any parties and all the rest of the things. So being able to know that, see that. But the other thing is people need to feel valued. Everybody in that wing does a job, and every job there contributes to the Air Force mission. If you're if you're processing paperwork for fuel for a jet, that jet doesn't fly without that fuel. And so, getting the word out, letting people know directly how important they are, not only to the Air Force and the mission, but personally to people and family and friends around them. You know, if you don't feel valued, that's that's when you start taking that that trip down. Into that. The other thing with leadership is they gotta they gotta walk the walk. The first time I did a presentation for Fight for Each Other, we had reserved parking spaces out in front of the auditorium, and for the, all the group commanders, all the the wing commander, the command chief, and the like, and all the airmen were told that this was a mandatory function, and they all started shuffling in, and all of those parking spaces were empty, every single one of them. And the airmen saw that, and, and you know, it's reminiscent of my dad with a cigarette in his hand telling me not to smoke. you got to walk the walk. Gotta, if it's important for the airmen, it's important for everybody that, that, that's, that's in that chain of command. And they got to make sure that they know that. We lost a wing commander up at Isleson. We lost a two-star general downrange. This can happen to anybody. It really can. It, but it always gets better because the tools the Air Force has available, they work. If you're willing to work it, they, they work. And what do you say are the best, some of the best resources available for our airmen? I like the program that we have in that it's real people telling real stories because I think, you know, obviously the, the mental health counseling, the ability for leadership to understand that sometimes people need a little bit of time to, to, to get back on track. That's all important. But as we discussed, you have that critical time period, that 15 seconds or 30 seconds when something bad happens and you just want to say, screw it. And if we can actually plant a seed in some of our airmen's, in our airmen's minds about the impact that it has on friends and family around them and the success stories, success stories should drive them to seeking help. The impact that it has on friends and family should be there to give people pause. You know, I present with a lady, her, her husband, a hard charge of Marine shot himself 25 years ago. It was witnessed by her and her son. She lost 25 years of his life and she lost her, her six-year-old son 15 years later. 
when she came home and found him hanging from a ceiling fan. That's the impact it has on friends and family. Right. So reaching people, connecting with them on a personal level to let them know the consequences and, and the impact that it has on people around them, I think it'd be a great tool to get them into the programs that can be wildly successful. Nobody's going to, the old adage, nobody's going to get help unless they want it. How do we get them to want it? That's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the key right there. How do we get them to want it? You know, the Air Force as a whole is focusing, you know, on decreasing suicide through different prevention measures. Where do you feel that we're lacking in some areas to improve? The two big ones that I always kind of beat the drum on are, as I said, not recognizing the, or not talking about the impact it has on friends and family. And because it's it's devastating. One suicide can affect in concentric circles, 150 other people. And then not talking about our success stories you know and and this is real people talking and discussing you know we have this stigma attached with suicide discussions you know i was a fulberg colonel when i came out and you know most people think fulberg colonels you know they're perfect they have this great career they do everything right they run six minute miles they all have phds they're all pilots and, and all the rest of the stuff and it's like no come on let's let's just talk about it we can't remove the stigma Unless we're willing to talk about it. 50 years ago, we didn't talk about cancer. 25 years ago, someone in your family got AIDS. Nobody talked about it. That was hush hush. Mm-hmm. We're curing both now. We're curing them, and it's time for people to stand up and let others know that they've also had struggles, that they were able to overcome them, and how they were able to overcome them. Because we don't talk about when we're talking about the receiving help. People think. The receiving help is just, you know, so you can get through the day. No, you can actually get to the point where you have a great life, where you look forward to getting up in the morning. I run, I've run 30 marathons since then. I drive around the island in a 65 Corvette Stingray. I'm married again. <laughs> I retired in Hawaii. All of these things that I would not have had if I'd have checked out. I got to spend 18 more years in uniform. I got to save people's lives, careers, and everything else. Show them the impact that they can have on lives around them. And that will get them, hopefully get them in the doors. You know, uh, you go watch Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, here's what life would have been if you'd never been born. And and let people know that that they make such a contribution to the world around them, their friends, family, and coworkers because the fact that they're here. Right. And that's, you know, that's the whole thing, right? Building that resiliency and speaking about it and talking and living through all your troubles, but learning how to bounce back. Those are some of the big key things that, you know, I'm trying to help in the wink and try to facilitate that, that piece. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Um, we have, we have one more problem. We're as military, but we want it. We, we tend to trust people who wear our uniform more than people who have it. And so some of the resources have never worn a uniform. It doesn't mean they don't care. It just means that, you know, how can you relate to me if we don't have a common set of experiences and everything else like that? So having mental health providers who are in uniform, I think is also a good thing. I think it helps. It's just one less hurdle to establishing that trust that you need to have and that that relationship that you need to have. Right. And, you know, we're in that disconnected time frame, right? With COVID, um, everyone's disconnected, teleworking, and we can only suspect COVID has significantly impacted suicide. Unfortunately, we won't know the results of that for a couple of years, but what are your thoughts on that? I have, 
I'm in the middle of it right now, and I am watching people's lives literally be destroyed. Out here in Hawaii, tourism is everything. So we, when the nation was in a, had like a 20% unemployment rate, we were up in the 30%. I mean, we were just, it, it's been devastated. We've been locked down. We're still locked down. The governor just extended the lockdown. And I really fear, you read stories about domestic violence increases. I think divorce rates are up 37%. You've got people who can't pay their bills. You've got people who started businesses and they've been in business for 20 years. And now because of some arbitrary shutdown, you know, I understand that they want to help keep people safe, but you can't keep everybody safe from everything all the time. And I, I fear that we're going to find that the number of people who feel that their lives have been destroyed, the number of divorces, the number of domestic violence incidents and all the rest of the things, I think those numbers are going to be a lot higher than the number of deaths from COVID. And it's, it's, just, it's just heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. And, and one final note, what would you say to someone right now that's possibly listening contemplating suicide? I would say first, consider the impact that it has on friends and family. Second, remember that you are an incredibly important addition to this planet, your friends, your family, and coworkers. And third, just reach out. Just reach out to friends, to anybody. Good gosh, give them my phone number, you know, uh, to just to let people know that it's possible. It's amazing the tools that I was given that allowed me to cope with different circumstances in ways that I just, I hadn't even imagined, you know, it just, so I, I know it's hard because when you're in that dark place, you're not looking at reaching out. I guess a better response would be, how do you keep from getting to that dark place? Maybe here's a thought, you know, if you're not feeling particularly well, go make an appointment. And if you're a boss, talk to your folks out and say, yeah, I've kind of been down a little bit, went and talked and yeah, really, the doc was really kind of pretty cool about this and let people know that, you know, the people that work for you know that, hey, it's okay to go there and you might actually get some benefit out of it. Colonel Swanson, thank you so much for talking with us today. I, I can't express how thankful I am and for really sharing your story, being vulnerable, right? Because listening or having to repeat yourself and talk through these um, events, you know, it's triggering, I'm sure. Sometimes it takes you back to that place, but I really want to thank you for your time today and sharing your story. Sure. One last thing. Like I said, that guy died on the side of the mountain. So that's one of the things that, that keeps me grounded throughout this process. The final thing, and I've asked this a few times when I'm talking to the audience, you said you appreciate my vulnerability and, and, and transparency and authenticity. A lot of people wouldn't, don't want to talk about it because they think that it might make them look weak. And so I would ask your audience members, if there's anybody out there that thinks that I'm a weak person, and if the answer to that question is no, then I've just shown them that it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to bounce back because it doesn't make you a weak person. Actually seeking the help makes you stronger than most of the people around you. Right. Thank you for that. And Gladiators, thank you for tuning in for this episode of Sword and Shield. If you are thinking about suicide or are worried about a friend or a loved one, just would like some emotional support, the Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK. 
to reach a trained counselor. Um, you can use that same number and press number one to reach the veteran crisis line. Thank you again, and I look forward to continued work with you in the future, Colonel Swanson. You betcha. Take care. Thank everybody. you.